Okie dokie. All right, here we are. We made it. We actually have about 100 people here in the office. So we just, uh, between one and 300, I should say. We got closer to one, but, uh, but a lot more online. So a lot more there on, on YouTube and our website and Facebook and realbc.tv. So, so many different options in, in getting the word out over the internet. So, okay. Well, thank you, Pastor Andrew, for uh, playing the guitar. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. So the problem is now that means he needs to repeat that every Sunday. That's a lot of work, though. That's a lot of work. We'll have to give him a raise or something mm-hmm. to uh, to help him do that. I enjoy the guitar, but I think if Pastor Andrew would do that, then Way and Fernando would would join him on the side, and um, wouldn't that be good? If that would be good, why don't you comment there on Facebook or YouTube to uh, to encourage that? But uh, I I would I don't want to. It's not me playing, so. I don't want to put Pastor Andrew on the spot like I normally do every week. Wasn't that good, ladies? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and Sarah singing. It's very good. And I, I, I know you all sang from home, and your neighbors are wondering what's going on in there. So that's a good thing for them to wonder. And uh, I just love that story about Rich, Richard Baxter. He's a great, uh, great pastor. Um, I think it was, I know it's England, what's the town? Kidderminster, I think it was, 1600s. He came to that town, and there were, on Sunday, they said you could scarcely find a house where uh, one of the families observed the Lord's Day, uh, singing his praise. But by the time he had spent his life there, not his whole life, but his ministry there, you couldn't find a street where there wasn't on the Lord's Day people singing praise to the Lord. Um, so that's a, a phenomenal uh, <laughs> a phenomenal thing. So uh, praise the Lord for that. Um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll say that uh, maybe that's happening in Queens today. Okay, I, I need to keep going. Um, anyway, so let's, uh, let's look at, at Psalm 119, verse 1. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 1. We'll do our memory verse. Uh, just say a couple things here. Um, please come next Sunday, right? Let's just pack out that room every Sunday. I thought it was really funny that, I don't know, the Lord loves to make us change our plans, right? And often when we have to change our plans, uh, it's because he wants to do something bigger. And uh, that doesn't mean you don't plan, uh, but often he wants to do something better. And so we always bow to his plans, um, but I do think it's, it is important for us to meet together as a congregation, right? And so um, I'm pretty old school on that. Um, and, and I think there's, there's Bible to support it, of course. But just the way I was raised, like if, if we had to walk a foot of snow uphill both ways to get to church, we were there, right? Um, so, you know, I, I'm not a... I, honestly, if the landlord said, said it would be okay, we would have met and just done space heaters, and if we're a little colder, that's fine, but, uh, but they preferred that we not meet since the boiler wasn't working, so anyway, so let's all come back, yeah, we would have smelt like kerosene too, or, but uh, we would have warmed it up real quick with good fellowship, all right, so anyway, so come next week, and uh, we'll make sure we, uh, we're able to meet together, 
and uh, honor the Lord as much more as we see the day approaching as well, right? And the day is approaching, so uh, so we definitely don't want to step back in our meeting together uh, to worship our Lord. Let all the angels of God worship Him, right? So let the people of God uh, worship Him, as Hebrews says. Okay, so we're memorizing Psalm 119 together, and uh, little by little, we have made it all the way to verse 1, verse 1. I do have memory verse cards, actually, for you today, and uh, so all of you who have come will get a memory verse card, and then we'll have them available for you uh, in the lobby uh, next week, and and we're going to get to that in the sermon today, Um, but let's all read this out loud together, and then we'll jump into the text for today. Aleph, meaning the first verses here, I think it's eight verses, all begin with A, the Hebrew letter A. Uh, So let's jump into the text. Can we read this out loud together, all of us? Um, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. All right, one more time. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. All right, that doesn't mean we're perfect. Uh, I was talking to a couple this week, and they were going through a hard time, a couple in our community, and um, they just said uh, uh, they felt broken, and, uh, and, and the idea, as I chatted with them, was, you know, some people think they have their lives all put together, and uh, that would be a very dangerous thing to think if you feel like you have your life put together, completely put together, because we're all broken. And we're all growing in every way, right? In every way, all of us are growing. We have never come to the point where we don't need to hear about resisting temptation. Um, we've never come to the point where we're like, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay with that text. As soon as you have feel that way, not only do you start condescending toward others, and that is a horrible, horrible thing, um, but it's not true. It's pride because uh, the, the word of God is profitable right? And, and, and we all need to be growing in every way. But as I looked at them, I was just like, don't think that churches are full of people who have everything together. Churches are full of everyone in the church needing brokenness healed, uh, cracks uh, patched up, and we're all in process. We're all a work in process. So, I like that, that uh, word integrity. The NLT translates it that way. How blessed are those uh, that they, the person, uh, blessed is the person who's full of integrity. And the idea is we're, we're growing in our stability in that way. Okay. Um, and, uh, and yet, by God's grace, as we continue to grow, people look at us and they see Christ through the brokenness uh, more than they see Tim. Um, so that's important. Okay. So let's, uh, that's our memory verse for today. This is a little awkward, but I think we'll be okay. You feel like I'm just talking to you, don't you? (laughs) Uh, But I'm not. All right, so that's why we start out that way. Definitely talking to Tim. The text is what talks. Okay, so here we are going through who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And uh, we've kind of come from... Uh, birth, we talk, uh, talked a little bit about his birth. The first lesson, we talked about these gospel writers. Uh, that is how we know who Jesus is, these first account witnesses. Kind of surveyed a little bit about who they were. 
Our second lesson, we talked about Jesus and his birth and childhood. Um, and uh, really uh, amazing uh, truths about Jesus' birth and childhood. And then you have this real long gap here from 7 AD, 8 AD to 26 or 27 AD where there's really, look at this, no text at all. We know he's a carpenter. We can put some things together because they, you know, Mark says he's the carpenter. He's referred to as the carpenter, so this was his trade. But other than that, there's very little that we piece together from the text. We just know the situation in life in Nazareth for a family, a large family. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene here. Um, and so last week we looked at this forerunner, this prophet, uh, John the Baptist, and we saw a little bit about him uh, as he as he portrays who Jesus is. And, and today we we phase out or close the book on John the Baptist and find him passing the torch over to Jesus in Jesus' baptism. And we're going to look at two scenes in this chapter today uh, because all of the texts that handle this, except for John, John just looks at the baptism briefly, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they combine Jesus' baptism with his temptation in the wilderness. So there's this fascinating combination there and we're going to look at those the contrasts and the similarities between those two things okay so uh the the text is uh is various here you see that in your worship guide here um and we're gonna i'll, I'll kind of highlight the text as we go along we'll walk through several texts um as we find this spirit-filled start so let's pray actually i'm going to read uh the mark uh gives all of this in the most, uh, in the quickest fashion. So let's look at Mark's text. Uh, again, he's the one that describes it really fast. Uh, Mark 1, 9 through 13, and then we'll pray. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. All right, so here we have uh, the baptism and temptation of Jesus. Lord, as we look at these uh, verses, they're, they're short. It's such a short description, and yet what a milestone in your earthly life, um, your days walking in human flesh on earth, in Galilee, in Judea. What a milestone in Israel's history, in the John the Baptist life, and I pray a milestone in our life and in our church life. Lord Jesus, would you please speak uh, these words uh, clearly to us. Dear Holy Spirit, may you fill us as hearers to be doers, but as hearers to understand. May you um, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your, out of your law. May you fill us uh, with your um, enabling grace perceive those things that are only perceived by the Spirit. And so we thank you that you fill the church, uh, the body of Christ, and that we do not need a building, um, that we are gathered in spirit 
and in truth. Uh, we, we pray for your blessing on the church uh, in places where they always have to gather this way in fear of their life, um, that, that someone would, would find them a year's wages to meet this way, or that someone would um, arrest them or even kill them for meeting in this way. Lord, would you be with them today as they meet? Would you uh, fill them with your spirit that they may see your presence with them? Um, Lord, I pray that this uh, stream would come across someone who does not know you um, and they would be introduced to you just as you were introduced to Israel um, 2,000 years ago, um, really right about this time. Uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for you are worthy of our worship and our singing, and now you're worthy of our ears listening, and as we leave, our feet and hands obeying. So we ask for your blessing to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, very good. Well, let's, uh, let's look here again, uh, look at who Jesus is as we consider his temptation um, and his baptism. I want to begin with one scene. This place is a spectacular place. We, we really are just now piecing it together. I saw one uh, archaeological find that's just now piecing together the tiles from this time period. And so that was 2016. So all of the models and so forth that we've shown are inadequate uh, because the tiles in this building, which was a wonder in its day, um, have totally been rethought of as each tile like this big was ornate and beautiful. Uh, much of it was covered with gold, so it would sparkle in the sunshine. And that is Herod's temple. We've met Herod a couple times, uh, and it's not been good. Well, we've met him, and then we've met his son. We're going to run into these Herods quite a bit. Herod the Great... 25 years before Jesus, so at this point it's a 45-year building project, came on the throne 25 years before Jesus approximately. And, and for really decades, they had been remodeling this huge temple, beautiful, huge temple. And, and so here is one um, artist's idea of what this would look like. And I kind of like this one. Um, that you can see the, the, the magnificent. So this is just the temple. Um, this would be the temple complex. This is twice as large as Solomon's temple, right? So this is Herod, right? He's like, whatever he does is going to be huge, okay? So like in his mind, he's trying to appease his Jewish subjects. He's trying to say, I'm the big dude of worship. Um, and he's trying to make his name known for generations to come. What's great is not too long after, not great, but not too long after him, they're no longer talking about Herod's temple, and Jesus prophesied that that would happen. Um, so this is, this is the temple complex. You know, the court of the Gentiles would be here as you get closer to the temple than the, the, the Jewish ladies and men, and then just the Jewish men. And, and even going into this temple proper, there are signs saying if you're, if you're a Gentile, you, you enter at risk of your life, Okay. Um, so just a, a fascinating place. Uh, but if we could 
stand on one of the pinnacles right on the back here, overlooking the Kidron Valley. And, um, and so, so probably, the, this is what people believe. Uh, now, some people believe that this took place up here, uh, but most folks believe this took place back here, uh, where Josephus says it's a dizzying height, 450 feet high. Um, if you can imagine that. So, like, our family likes to, our family likes to, like, we, we do this whenever we go to Times Square, often when we go to Times Square. Uh, we will go to the, is it the Hilton? I think it's the Hilton. The Marriott. The Marriott. They have these see-through elevators, glass elevators, and when you get in them, they zoom up like 40 to 60 floors. Um, and, and so that ride is free for anyone who would like to do it. Uh, so we do it. We get on and we take a ride in the elevator, and it's really awesome. You look down, and it is dizzying. Right? It is dizzying looking down these 40 floors. That's the, the height. 450 feet high um, as we think about this pinnacle. And so this is a, a fascinating place that will come up toward the end of our message today. Uh, but who is standing there? Uh, you can answer in the living room there because we can't hear you. Uh, so you could say it the wrong way. But, but in our scene today, we find Satan there. Now, now this, there's so many questions that the text does not answer and so I'm going to kind of take a stab at some of them, but I'm not going to go into all of them because we don't have time, right? But um, Satan is there, right? So two of the, the Gospels say Satan. One of the Gospels calls him the devil. Uh, so this would be the accuser uh, the, or the opposer. Those are those two ideas. The, the one who uh, slanders, who says wrong things about the saints. That is satanic, um, and then the opposer, the opponent, the enemy, uh, is there. Uh, from other texts, we know that this is a spirit being, created spirit being, who was involved in tempting the first temptation, who? Eve, and then Adam fell, right, in response to this temptation in the garden. So you can kind of see a contrast start between these two situations. Adam and Eve in the garden perfect setting, perfect condition, all their needs are met. And there's a temptation from this ugly, not ugly, but this Satan, this being. And now he is standing to tempt the second Adam. Um, the second Adam here is Jesus. And so you find Satan um, and then Jesus. What does Jesus look like at this point? Well, we haven't been told a whole lot about him, right? The texts tell us as Satan as though we're supposed to know who he is. We're just now beginning to know the birth of Jesus. But what I'd like us to do is read these texts as if we had never seen them or read them before. And in their setting, in their setting, this is the spot they're thinking about. In their setting, as they read Mark's gospel, they're thinking as Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, specifically as he goes into detail, they're thinking about Jesus standing there and facing Satan. They're thinking about the temptation of Satan in the garden. Jesus is emaciated. He has just spent 40 days without eating. How many of you ever go a day without eating? Right? If you go a day without eating, you, you start to feel weak. If you go a week without eating, like it's hard to move around. You're just conserving calories as much as you can. 
You can imagine all the fat on Jesus's bones is gone. His body is, is eating his muscle. This is what's going on as Jesus stands there 450 feet. Josephus says that it is dizzying to look out from that pinnacle. So here's Jesus barely able to walk or stand as he has not eaten for 40 days, emaciated, starving to death. And he is dizzy, his eyes are blurry, and he looks out there very dizzy, and Satan says, just drop, just drop. And he gives him scripture. All you got to do, all right, this is the spot where Jesus will give his life. All you got to do is drop. Here's a shortcut. Or, you know what, there's this text He's going to take care of you. Psalm 91. His angels will come and carry you. And there's the temptation. A formidable foe as we get into this boxing match between Satan and our Lord. But more is going on here than meets the eye of what God is telling us. And so we'll end there and we'll pick that back up and give us our own life applications for how we face Satan When we go to that point where we are weak, where we have not eaten, we're hangry, uh, where we are exposed to the elements, and that is when the temptation comes. How can we stand? How can you stand? How can I stand? Well, it begins with the baptism. So let's move to the baptism. What we're going to do is what we do each time as we do through this. Uh, We look at the overview of what's going on. And then um, of baptism and the temptation. And then we go back and we look at the big ideas going on and then briefly uh, the application to us. So let's start here with this overview of the baptism and overview of the temptation. Uh, I think, Peggy, I think you got, I think we updated the notes. Um, whoever updates the notes. Uh, Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Mark 1, 9 to 11. Luke 3, 21 to 22. And John 1, 19 to 34. Those are our texts. If you're taking notes, you can add to that. And uh, let's jump into one of these. I'm going to look at uh, Matthews, uh, actually, uh, for this. And, uh, and we'll jump into the, the scene of Jesus' baptism um, as he summarizes it. And uh, you have some blanks in there to fill out. If you uh, are looking online, you can go to nycgrace.org backslash tv. And uh, you can follow the notes there and, and fill in the blanks to help you keep, keep you awake. I would say this, turn off your phone unless you're watching on your phone or uh, maybe the, the notifications because you're going to get a notification from a bill collector and from your lost cousin, Nigel, and all of these things are going to distract you. But the Lord wants you to hear this message, okay? Uh, so try to stay with me even in these types of conditions. No doubt all of you are sitting carefully listening. Maybe turn it up. Okay, first of all, the scene of Jesus' baptism. Let's jump in here. The location is the Jordan River. The Jordan River. Uh, Alongside the Jordan River, John would preach the gospel. He would preach the, the good news of the need to repent and that the kingdom of God is here. The king is at hand. Uh, so let's get ready, get our hearts ready. And people would come and identify with that message with their need for repentance in the Jordan River. Um, 
probably closer to Jerusalem. So if you picture the Jordan River uh, going from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, as you get closer to Jerusalem there, um, probably is where uh, John is baptizing. I picture a, uh, a bend in the river. I picture, I may be wrong here, but I picture uh, a muddy area uh, where, where the, the river is so slow that the soot and the, and the rotten leaves and, and uh, bulrushes have, uh, have collected a bunch of gunk as John is down there in his camel's hair up to here and maybe a little higher and people are coming by the scores. And what would happen in that day, this is most likely the way it happened with Jesus, is people would just come in and they would kneel down and they would immerse themselves. That's what the word baptize means, is immerse. They would immerse themselves underwater and they would come up saying, saying, Lord, cleanse me, cleanse me of all my sin. Um, so the location of the Jordan River, the timing. This is fascinating. Look at the timing here. Uh, Jesus arrived from Galilee to the Jordan. So this is why we're saying probably going from Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, down toward where John would be closer to Jerusalem um, and to be baptized by him. Um, Okay, Luke is the one who says this. Luke tells us that that all the people were baptized. Luke 3, verse 21 says, when all the people were baptized. That's just what he says. And again, we would read over that really quickly. But this is the type of ministry John had. It's like if I said, you know, everybody in Queens got COVID. And and you kind of feel that way. It's just like, yeah, it went into every household. Like, it's like everybody got this thing. Um, This is the the mindset uh, of all of Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee. Everyone responded to John's baptism. Now, not everybody, because he told some people they weren't allowed to. It's like, you guys guys aren't going to get baptized. You're not really repenting. Get out of here until your heart is right and you're ready to confess your sin. But Luke 3.21 gives us the time period. It's at the time when, like, this had reached its saturation point. Everyone has responded. In that culture, that means the Messiah can come. Everybody has repented. Israel has come to their knees. Now, this was surface level, but this is revival time, right? This is a time where everybody is responding to the message and believing the truth that we all need to get our hearts right for Jesus to come, for Messiah to come. When all people were baptized, Luke tells us, uh, this is the, the time period. Jesus comes to be baptized. Look at the reason, the reason he gives, right? There's this little scuffle from the start, verse 14 there. John tried to prevent Jesus. <laughs> I, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to be baptized by me? Right, so John the Baptist is preventing Jesus from being baptized. He, presents, he prevents the Pharisees from being baptized because of their hypocrisy. He, ref, he refuses Jesus to be baptized because of his purity. Totally opposite reasons. But he says, listen, why are you coming to be baptized by me? Well, Jesus gives the reason in verse 15. Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us all to fulfill all righteousness. And so here's the king coming, um, and, and he needs to set the example of his subjects. If the subjects need to be uh, enter into the kingdom through a heart of faith and repentance, and we're following the king, uh, the king is going to show that 
way of all righteousness by himself being baptized. And there's more than that as well. But first of all, uh, just initially here, in order to set the example, right, this is what needs to be done to fulfill righteousness. Of course, the Bible clearly states that Jesus had no sin in himself. He was the pure Lamb of God. Um, so it's not his own sin that he, re- he is repenting of. In one sense, as the figurehead, he is repenting of all of our sin. Um, as we'll find out, as the head of the church, uh, he not only suffers for our sin, he obeys the commands for us. He, he fulfills all scripture for us. So in order to fulfill all righteousness, he even does this for us. And then the action. All the gospels just state it. I mean, it's like, this is such an amazing event, Jesus being baptized. And they just state it. And he was baptized. And so you can picture Jesus coming. The, the, I, I picture stones. I've never been there. Um, one day we'll go. If, if in the millennium, in the millennium, we're going to do an Ironman there. Okay, we're going to start in the Sea of Galilee. We're going to swim across it. And we're going to bike down to the Dead Sea. And we're going to do a, a marathon there. So you can join me in the, in, the, in the kingdom doing that. But until then, we see pictures and we put together what it was like. It would be very, you know, similar to, to getting down to the stream here. Um, there are many arid places in, in Palestine, but right next to the Jordan, it's not arid. Right? So you picture a mountain stream, a nice stream flowing through. Uh, with rolling hillsides, and, and Jesus walks down to the water, down to about his waist, and he would have done the same thing. John the Baptist probably would not have dipped him. That's just not how they did it in the Jewish days. It was immersion, uh, but John would have been standing here as the efficient and calling people to come, and people would have been coming to the water. About everybody's done. Who else? Well, here comes Jesus. Comes down to the water, ducks down under the water, fully immerses himself, comes back up. And then the text, we get a couple cues from Luke and Matthew about what happens next. But, but it's, it's, it's remarkable. Luke tells us one thing that's happening that's neat. Matthew tells us that he's coming up out of the water. So uh, as he's coming to the shore, these two uh, circumstances happen that are really astounding and supernatural. We'll get to that, actually three, uh, in just a moment. But Luke gives us another key, and we're going to find this over and over in Luke what is happening as Jesus is walking to the, the edge, uh, getting up out of the water? What is Jesus doing? I am falling. Yeah. What is Jesus doing? He is praying. Isn't that fascinating? So if you picture this in your mind, you're picturing Jesus soaking wet, coming up out of the water. John's amazed because um, John has a cue of what's happening. And he knows even more in just a moment what, what just happened. But as Jesus comes out of there, he is actually praying to the Father. Uh, So Jesus is praying. Luke often tells us that, states when Jesus is praying. The reaction is what is astounding. Um, The reaction, there's a threefold reaction there uh, in your notes. Uh, The heaven, the dove, and the voice. The heaven, the dove, and the voice. And these are astounding. Um, And then we really need to know the significance of this. Okay, so this is just the setting. I'm describing the scene. There is something very significant going on here. Um, the heavens are opened. Okay? Mark describes it this way. He says, the heaven is torn open, literally. That, like the heaven is like a parchment and is ripped open. We, we, gain, we gain access into a different dimension, the dimension where God is, his very presence is. As, as the heavens are ripped open, 
we don't look into the planets. We looked into the very throne room of God. The heaven is ripped open. Similar language to the, the veil of the temple being ripped open at Jesus' death. I'm reminded of Isaiah 64, 1, where the text says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what's going on. God is saying the heavens are rent and God is here. God is here. The second is the dove. The Holy Spirit descends, right? After being baptized, Jesus came up out of the water immediately from the water. The heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. So, so here, Jesus is seeing this. By John, we see that John saw it as well. Beyond that, we don't know how many other people saw this. We, we're not told that there's a multitude of people around. I imagine that there are some, um, that there are 20 or 30, but we're not told any of those details. Uh, we, we do know that John saw it, and uh, the Holy Spirit descends. Now, you see a lot of pictures of this, right? Uh, there's a lot of church traditions that really, really love this scene as the primary emphasis, right? The Holy Spirit is the primary emphasis of this text. But if we understand it completely, it's not necessarily. I would say the Trinity is the emphasis of this text. But, of course, one of the persons is the Holy Spirit. Um, it says the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. All right, so there's this simile. The Holy Spirit is descending, and, and as he's descending, it's as a dove would descend. Now, where does that come from? He's descending as a dove. Um, is this just that the Holy Spirit is saying they're not sure if this is a dove or not? I will tell you one thing. This is not saying the Holy Spirit is a dove. Um, the Holy Spirit is descending in, bo- in a bodily form that, that they would say, boy, this is, he, he looks as if he is a dove. The idea is that the Holy Spirit is descending in a, in a, and he is spirit. He has no body, but he takes a bodily form at this point. The bodily form that you would say, boy, that's like a dove. And actually rests upon, or, or it's like he disappears as he uh, is in Jesus. Now, this is not to the first time that we see the Holy Spirit in these Gospels. So we can't say that Jesus before this had no power, and then the Spirit comes. We know that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb and did supernatural things, right? So, so like we, I got to understand this, all of these texts together. Uh, I will tell you what is happening in just a moment. Um, but the Holy Spirit actually is coming, and, and the, the dove idea here, you know, some would say this is that he's peaceful, um, right, gentle as a dove, maybe the idea of the ark when, when the dove is released, and so there's a picture of salvation there. I personally take a different view. This is my view, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. Um, if you read dove in that day, you might think of the ark, but what would you think of if you thought of a dove in that day. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. That is exactly. You're in Jerusalem. Anytime you see a dove around Jerusalem, you are thinking one thing and one thing only. You are thinking sacrifice. And so John the Baptist sees this. He sees the dove coming down and coming upon the sun. And and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. But he's already thinking sacrifice with the dove of God entering into the Son of God. And so here we actually have, really fascinating, we have all three persons of the Trinity 
at one place manifesting themselves at the same time. Right, so, so this is why we don't believe that, that God is one and then he takes several modes as he desires. Right, so God became man, but then he was no longer father and spirit, and then he became spirit at times. This is, shows us that all three persons of the Godhead, equally God, are manifesting themselves at the same time. And they both, all three, have such an important part. So the, secondly, the, the, the Spirit is descending upon Jesus. Um, and then, then, as we will see, the Spirit continues to work through Jesus. And then the third is the Father's voice. Um, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my Son, my only begotten Son, in whom I am well pleased. I, this is my beloved Son. This is my only begotten, beloved Son. Okay, so what's going on here? That, that is fascinating. That is really cool. Uh, this happens only a few times in Jesus' life, but we see the Spirit descending, the Son is receiving, and then the Father is blessing. So what is going on here? Um, if I could just look at a few texts, I can't remember. I, I had to switch over to one, um, so I don't know that I got all this. Yeah, I did. Um, this is what's going on, Okay. If you know your Bible in that day, this is what you're thinking about. Um, the, the, what's going on here is, again, the focus is not the Holy Spirit. The focus is the Messiah. This is what's going on here. You have these texts, Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. There will be a son of David. And a branch from his roots will, be, will bear fruit. Look at this. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Son of David who will be the Anointed One? Isaiah 42.1. I'm sorry. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my Spirit whom I uphold, my Chosen One, in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him. This is what's going on here. And so as actually God revealed to John the Baptist, and we won't look at the text, but in John, John's Gospel, John 1, as he recounts this, he said, God told me that the person on whom you see the Spirit descending, he is the one. He's the Son of God. He is the Anointed One. This is what's happening. The coronation of the King. We know Messiah means Anointed One. Mashiach. That's what it means. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. If the Son of God, God himself, were to be anointed as Messiah, who would do the anointing? With what would you anoint him? God would do the anointing and would anoint God with God himself. Isn't that amazing? This is what's going on here. God is rending the heavens and saying, I am here. I am here. The, the Spirit is the oil of anointing on which Jesus is anointed and declared to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. And no other anointing will do. Right? And we'll get to the practical applications, of course. Yes, no other anointing will do for us either. We need the Spirit to come upon us and to fill us and strengthen us and anoint us for service as well. But the biggest thing going on here is that 
because he's going to baptize with the Spirit. And that's the point. Because he has the Spirit's anointing, he can baptize with the Spirit uh, in his body. So that's the big thing here. The big thing is the King has come. The Trinity is stating the King is here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke connect all of these, and so does John. Uh, But Matthew, Mark, and Luke go from that amazing event to uh, a contrast uh, as they enter uh, the, the wilderness. And so we move quickly to the temptation. Um, and I'll try to put a few ideas here together with the temptation. But you can see the immediate contrast. There's the contrast of water at the Jordan, very nice setting, to the desert, right? And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who comes upon him at the water, and then he's faced by the Spirit of darkness. We tremble not at him, but th- you see the contrast here from one scene to the next. As the Holy Spirit brings Jesus, the second Adam, to face the devil himself. And we find, is the king going to stand? The newly anointed king is facing Goliath right off the bat. Uh, He enters Apollyon's domain, as would have been understood in their culture especially. Um, The wilderness, will he stand? Forty days, just like Elijah, just like Moses, just like the children of Israel, 40 years, right? So we're understanding this time of testing, this time of temptation. Forty days is significant as we look at the temptation. Uh, let's see, if you're taking notes, I have the text here. It's Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, Mark 1, verses 12 to 13, Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. And here, uh, John does not include this. Uh, but it's still very, you know, very significant. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is taking on his first bout of testing. Let's look at the three settings. The three settings. Um, I, I like Mark's description again. Immediately coming up out of the water, the voice, the dove, and then look at verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. No break there. So it's very clear that the Bible's wanting us to understand these two texts together. Baptized, comes up. Immediately, the Spirit takes him, or he goes, we're not sure. I believe the Spirit actually lifts him up, and one of the texts says throws him almost, like casts him into the wilderness uh, to to face this foe. That's the timing. Uh, Look at the three settings here, and you have a chart that goes through this uh, in your notes. We'll try to fill this out together and take a moment with them. Um, You have the the three uh, temptations here. Uh, And I think it's really interesting that the text uh, is trying to give us several different uh, illusions. But one of the main illusions is Israel in the wilderness and how they failed the test each time. And the idea is, will Christ, Israel's king, our champion, as we continue to read the Gentiles being ushered into this new body, will he be able to lead us to victory or will we falter and fail as we followed Moses? Um, and, And we find, of course... Right. Spoiler alert, Jesus will lead us victoriously. The first temptation is, again, very pressing. Now, um, I, I, what I believe, right, as the text state this, it's at the end of 40 days, and the idea is that he probably was being tempted the whole time, and this is the, the culmination of all these tests. There were times where angels would come and minister to Jesus during these tests, but here's the culmination of all these tests as he, as he faces Apollyon, as he faces the the deceiver um, of the brethren, the slanderer, right? These are the, the destroyer, the murderer from the beginning. These are the things that Satan does, and he's trying to do this in Jesus' life. 
The first temptation is, is the lust of the flesh. We all have God-given desires um, that are given to us by our cre- just the way we're made. Uh, and, and so Satan often gets to us at these cravings. Right? I have a God-given desire to drink, uh, to drink water, and I have to have that desire fulfilled or I'll die. But you know what? I love coffee. And, and if I continue to just drink coffee and I drink 10 cups a day, eventually that's going to kill me, right? Uh, so, so I can actually abuse this thing I love and I enjoy um, to where I misuse it. Uh, same with food, right? I love bread, right? Uh, but, but you know what? I love apple pie. And, and I, can, I can take something that God meant to be good and to enjoy. I can enjoy apple pie in one sitting. But if that's all I eat, it will kill me. Um, and, and so there's this, this idea that, that Satan has from the beginning. He's taken God-given desires, and that could be a desire for, for sex. It could be a desire for food. It could be a desire for water. It could be a desire for sleep. It could be a desire for work. And, and we can take all these natural God-given desires, and he loves to twist them, to distort them, to beat us up with them until we choose them over God. And so this is the first temptation. Of course, this would be the one we saw in the garden. Um, the first failure, the first Adam fell as he followed Eve and chose to, to eat. Um, and here we find Satan doing the same thing, uh, in, encouraging in Luke chapter 2 uh, to, to take bread and just look at these stones, turn them into bread. So simple. Jesus using his abilities as the God-man to take the stones and turn them into bread and to eat them. And Jesus, now, you know, we, we wonder why couldn't Jesus do that? He's starving. Well, it, it appears that that would be going away from God's intended purpose for him in his use of his abilities, his divine abilities, that he would not be using them in that selfish way. And so he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Each of these quotes comes from Deuteronomy. That's why I say this is all about Israel. This is all about the parallel of Israel in the wilderness and Moses and Adam, the first Adam, and now Christ, the second Adam, the great leader, the Messiah, the king of kings. Second temptation is fascinating. He, he, he takes him up, one of the texts says, to a large mountain, a tall mountain. And he shows them all the kingdoms of the earth. Luke 4, verses 5 and 6. He led him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Well, that's fascinating, right? Again, we don't, don't know a whole lot other than that. Um, this, like it's on a mountain, but... It's hard to see all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment on a mountaintop. Um, but what I, I believe Satan does is kind of unveils his plans. This is how I'm using Rome. This is how I'm using Herod. This is how I'm using uh, all, all the inhabited earth to destroy your father's will. I'm going to give it all to you. You can have all the dominion, all the authority, all the power, if you will just, you know, just, just bow down and worship me. That's all. And I'll give it to you all, and you'll be Lord of all. So Satan is tempting Jesus with everything. 
Um, but we know specifically he's he's wanting to show him that he can do things his own way rather than the Father's will. The Father has just anointed him as Messiah, the ruler of all the nations, and he's going to give him all authority. At that moment, though, right, and people go back and forth, was Satan able to actually do this? I think he was overselling. Uh, he... He is, he is able to do, he actually is the prince and power of the air. Uh, John repeatedly in John's gospel, uh, even Jesus states that he's the ruler over the world, the world ruler. First uh, John says the same thing, uh, you know, a generation later. And so we do realize that Satan has a lot of authority, but all his authority is checked at the throne of God, right? And so this, is, this, is, this would be giving him what he cannot truly give. Jesus responds by saying, you can only serve and worship one God. I can't serve and worship you. And so he quotes scripture again. Then the third one, we already described this one, so I'll just go quickly through this one. Luke 4, 9 through 13, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, just, and now, now Satan picks up scripture. Satan knows his Bible. You've got to be really careful to know your Bible really well because Satan will take a verse out of context and he'll cause you to do all sorts of bad stuff. Um, so we've got to read the Bible in its context. Um, he, he tempts him to just jump off the temple and the angels will, will pick him up so they won't cast, won't stub his toe on a stone. And Jesus responds, uh, Deuteronomy 6.16, don't, what does he say? tempt don't tempt the lord your god and he's actually there talking about when they tempted the lord god in the wilderness they tested him uh, by their disobedience and so again it's the the language of israel uh jesus is using he knows his deuteronomy has that memorized of course he wrote it uh he is the word um but but he uses this to say satan you're wrong you're taking that verse out of context I should not tempt my father and test him, right? The walk of faith does not tempt God to destroy us. The walk of faith follows God with all our heart. And so, one, two, three, there's a three punch, and I love it. He just leaves. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan is a defeated foe. He is a defeated foe, and he flees and so we find the sword and the spirit. Jesus uses, he, he quotes the word through the power of the spirit, and Satan is no match for him. Satan's darts are, are not penetrating that shield of the word of God. Uh, and then Jesus uses it as a sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Um, so those are our big ideas. Let's, let's jump into that. Uh, the big ideas is, this is the big idea here. God is here, and he's taking the reins, the authority of the world. Satan thinks that he has authority, but God has come. He has come in human flesh, son of God. God is here. He is king. He is the Messiah, and he's going to subvert all of Satan's plans on a heart level. Repent, turn, trust Jesus as Lord. Follow him as your king. He knows the silly plans of Satan and all his minions, there is no victory on that side. You have two choices. You can continue to follow in the course of the world, which follows lockstep after the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians tells us. That's where they're going. He's beating a drum, and the world is following it. Just 
no view of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the earth. Right? Satan doesn't have to have people worshiping him. He just wants to keep people so filled with the secular news headlines of the day, with all that's going on in the world, that they stop worshiping Jesus. That's all he needs. He just, you see, he was ready to give all the world to Jesus just if he bowed the knee. He doesn't need to get you to worship him. He just needs to get you not to worship Jesus. And that's what he has been doing from the beginning. Deceiving, deceiving, deceiving. Twisting the word. But Satan will not be victorious. Jesus, the Messiah, has come and he is victorious. And we'll see that as we continue on. But this is, this is setting up the stage of what this whole life of Jesus will be. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the world. And he does have all authority. But it starts with him at this point, crushing the serpent, resisting the devil, and him fleeing from us. So he is king, God is here, and he is victorious. Um, even Jesus, at his weakest point, uh, is able to destroy Satan. Um, he is able to resist him. In, in And we're saying he's not using these supernatural abilities, not using, in that sense, his, his deity. Uh, he is using his humanity filled with the Holy Spirit. And the, the sword of the Spirit. So these are our practical applications. Uh, and we'll be done. I'm sorry, we went. I know I went way long today. It's so hard because I can't see. Uh, it's just not normal, so I will excuse that. Um, first of all, practical application. If you're here today and you're hearing this, this is so important. Um, first of all, identify publicly with the king. Identify publicly with the true king of kings. Uh, through baptism, right? Tell everyone, I am repenting of my sin. I am confessing Jesus as Messiah, and I'm following this king. You're either following him or you're following Satan. Again, that doesn't mean you have to be worshiping Satan, but those are the two options. Are you trusting following Jesus as Lord? And you know what that means? That means bowing in the water. <laughs> that, means, that means bowing to the anointed one. It means coming as a knight, to the king and letting him place his sword on either side of your shoulder and you say, my steel is yours, right? My gifts are yours. My mouth is yours. My life is yours. Now he lets us, right, enjoy life in his service um, to the fullest. It is the fullest of life. But perhaps you have never bowed to Jesus before. And maybe you've even confessed that, that you um, were saved. Uh, but, but if you have never repented, in your heart, and trusted him as Lord, that is something that you must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. There must be a true heartfelt repentance of sin. I have fallen short of the glory of God. And then a turning to Jesus as the lamb. He is the one who not only fulfilled all the law for me, but also died as the dove, as the lamb. Believe this. And I would, as John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. He longs to remove your sin as the water washes away the dirt. He longs to wash away your sin. So it will never be remembered against you again in the presence of God. But if you don't come in that way, if you don't come to Jesus as the Lamb, you will never have your sins forgiven. And you will continue to follow in Satan's just blindly, just blindly, where everyone else is following. And so I would encourage you, first of all, repent, 
Turn to Jesus as King and Savior. And then secondly, so important for us as, as Christians, we, we need to move past that to victory. Um, and I realize as, as we started out, you follow Peter's life, you follow James' life, you follow John, even well beyond when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. These men had flaws that needed to be addressed. And so we're all addressing each other, right? So nobody's perfect. But you know what? The Lord gives us consistent victory over temptation through his spirit. And he longs for that for you. Um, That is the way to joy, right? It's not to keep feeding the lusts of our flesh. It's not to keep living for the, 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 the power of whatever next level of your job is. Uh, the, the respect of the kingdoms, right? He, he, he wants to give you victory over those desires. And it happens through this, through the filling, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that comes, comes upon you as soon as you become a Christian. As soon as you trust in Jesus, the Spirit enters you. You're, you're actually baptized into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. But, but each day we need his filling. We need his controlling, his enabling, and then we need to use his sword. Uh, we need to know the word and use it. Um, and so if, if you have not been applying his word to your life, you are not going to be victorious in your Christian life. You're going to continue to fall to temptation. Satan is a formidable foe. But you are not ignorant anymore to his devices. So, so this is what we need to do each day. We need to ask for the spirit to to fill us, to give us strength to resist temptation. Lead me not to temptation. But then as we go throughout the day, as we face something, what do we need in our heart? Conviction. Conviction, okay, of, of fault, good. And then what did Jesus use repeatedly there? The word, yeah. We, we need to have the word as a dagger ready. As Satan's darts come at us, we need the shield of the Spirit, but we, we need this the sword of the Spirit um, to... To, to fight. And so I'm tempted to be anxious tomorrow because uh, of all the troops being lined up like a big game of risk there on either side of Ukraine. Maybe you're tempted to be anxious about that. Um, you know what? Satan would love to tempt that concern into something that so dominates and nags your mind that, that he steals all your joy. And you're no longer living victoriously. You're worried you have become anxious, and that becomes a sin. So what you do is, is you, take a, you take an arrow, you take a little dagger, and you memorize it. And as that worrying comes on, you start to recite this. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And you may actually have three, I would encourage three arrows, three daggers that go toward anxiety, right? In the back of one of our booklets, we actually have these um, organized by topic so that you can memorize, okay, what about anxiety when that comes? What about when fear comes? What about when lust comes? When I desire something that I am not supposed to, I covet that chocolate. All right, I'm trying to stay pretty ambiguous there, but you know what it is, right? These things that are desires that we try to go out of bounds with, whether sexual desires appetites of food or drink, right? These substance abuse issues. We, we do need help. We do need help of the family of God. But we also need God's spirit to enable us and to be 
to have a plan of attack, have the word memorized, so that when that time comes, all of a sudden your mind starts meditating, thinking about, dwelling on the glory of God and that specific area of temptation. That's the only way that we can have victory. So rely on God's spirit and his word to bring us to victory. When temptation comes, by God's grace, we'll be ready. I love the description of Christian as he faces Apollyon in Pilgrim's Progress. We're not going to go into that, but that is what we need to consider ourselves, that we are, in a, we are in a battle. It's a spiritual warfare, and you just can't sit on the sidelines. Once you, you are baptized into the church, we, we, we start walking like Christ. We're called to consistently living like Jesus, and he gives us that grace through his spirit and through his word. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we, we are so thankful for your many blessings and for the opportunity to uh, consider your truths and um, even be filled by your Spirit, that he is filling each person with confessed sin who have not grieved him in that way, uh, who have been uh, bought with the blood of Jesus. They have divine access, just as your Son did, to the Spirit's enabling grace to live like the Son. Lord, may each of us avail ourselves of this divine enabling this week. And may we, by your grace, resist temptation through the power of the Spirit and through his sword. May we be ready, not be lazy soldiers, but have an armory prepared for victory. Not just one or two verses, like, like Lord, you memorized all of Deuteronomy. Uh, may we be ready to face the wiles of the wicked one as we are not deceived, but we're built up in, in, with your sword. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.